If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, April the 11th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow. Our guest today in Hoover's recording studio on the campus of Stanford University is Eric Hargan. Eric Hargan is the Deputy Secretary of the United States Department of Health and Human Services, serving as HHS's Chief Operating Officer and responsible for overseeing the department's management and day-to-day operations. From 2003 to 2007, he held various posts at HHS. This would be in the Bush 43 administration. In between those tours of duty in Washington, Eric Hargan taught at Loyola Law School in Chicago, focusing on administrative law and health care regulations. He's here today at Hoover to do a roundtable with the fellows. And I have to ask you, Secretary Hargan, this is not once but twice at HHS. Are you, sir, a glutton for punishment? <laughs> no, I, I, I pretty much love every day that I spend at HHS. It's, it's an honor. It was an honor to have been brought into the yeah. department by President Bush and uh, and also President Trump. I ask that kiddingly, but HHS does have 11 operating divisions, if I've got the numbers right. It has a proposed budget of about, what, $87 billion, I think? Is That's that discretionary. That's but discretionary, but we get into mandatory funding. It's about $1.2 trillion with a T, right? Yes. $1.2 and your job is to manage this. Is, yes. Is this manageable? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, that's the uh, that's that's always the question that comes in. You have something that's over a quarter of the federal budget uh, and affects, uh, you know, through FDA and and other things. It affects like over a third of the economy of the United States. So mm-hmm. the and it and you know you're entrusted both with an enormous amount of resources, 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars, and so many authorities uh, that uh, it is a it's uh, the responsibility is great and incumbent on us to manage this very as well as we possibly can but yes it's a it's day to day okay well we could spend all day here talking about the various aspects of HHS but I want to dial uh, drive drive down to two things today uh, the first is the opioid crisis in the United States uh, something which I don't think gets enough attention um, the statistics on this are beyond depressing I think 130 Americans every day die from opioid related deaths um, it has decreased life expectancy. You read statistics about a drug like fentanyl, which now outpaces heroin as a drug most often implicated in drug overdoses. And it gets to the heart of the American dream in this regard. We were talking about this before we began recording. Um, America is ultimately an exercise in generational advance. And you come from parents who maybe didn't go to college, and you went to college. And then maybe your kids go to college and beyond college. And perhaps you do well in life and you pass on money to your kids. They do even better in life. It's climbing the ladder in America. But part of that agreement is that, okay, my parents worked very hard. They live until their 60s or 70s, and they passed away. Maybe I live five to ten years longer than them, but my children, thanks to a good upbringing, good access to health, good health habits, they live longer. But guess what's happening in America? decline in longevity. And we haven't faced this problem in over a century, but a century ago, there were two obvious culprits for declining longevity. There was a war on, and men were dying in Europe. And secondly, there was a pandemic. The Spanish flu influenza was killing people. Let's talk briefly about what is causing this opioid crisis in America from your perspective. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're facing, looks like it's going to be three years all in of, of decreased life expectancy for Americans, and it's really coming about because of this opioid crisis. 
crisis because right. of drug overdoses. Right. Um, and, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg in many ways. It's drug overdoses, and then it's the number of people who are addicted. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the spreading effects onto their families, their communities, caregivers who get burnt out and have to leave these communities, particularly right. in rural, uh, rural America. Uh, so it is, it is a crisis that is now national in scope. It was, it was affecting individual pockets of the country for many years, mm -hmm. but it has spread far beyond that and has become a national crisis. Thankfully, the president has recognized this and has really put, put forward a plan, and Congress has been generous with resources uh, for us to try to implement a way to turn this around. Tell me what you think the root cause here is, because if we looked at, let's say, malaria, we'd say, fine, let's go spray mosquitoes. If we looked at the bubonic plague, we'd say, fine, let's go kill the rats that are carrying the disease. But the opioid crisis is a very, it's, it's a very complicated topic because it's a question of people searching for drugs. It's a question of availability of drugs. You look at this issue, though, at HHS, what do you think is at the root of this? Well, it's got, of course, many factors. Like mm -hmm. any of these kind of true public health crises, it has a lot of different uh, sort of a lot of different wellsprings right. for this for this same problem, but uh, it is your point is well taken that you look at something like malaria or smallpox or something you look at it, it's a terrible problem, mm -hmm. but it has discrete solutions. Right. Uh, in this case, we're dealing with behavioral issues as well, behavioral health, uh, mental health. Uh, and then the physical aspects of the disease as well, because you're not you're you're looking at a lot of different parts of this, and it developed over time to the point where the deaths really took off just a few years ago, right. to the point where it broke into the national conversation. It had been sort of bubbling under uh, under the surface uh, and within the public health community, and it's broken out now. And it has a lot of different factors to it. Some of the factors include uh, changes in the past that were well-meaning mm -hmm. uh, within the public health community, and they were all undertaken with the best of, of intentions. For example, people started saying, we really need to treat pain and take it seriously. It hasn't been taken seriously uh, up till now. We need to take it seriously. Uh, and so people had a laudable focus on, we need to at least try to treat people's pain. Mm -hmm. Opioids tend right. to be a way to do that. Uh, people said, we need patients to be able to rate their experience. We want patients to be able to reflect on it. Well, right. what happens if somebody who is addicted to opioids comes to their doctor and the doctor says, I don't think you need any more. Mm -hmm. What does a patient, how do they rate their doctor? Right. A, a zero. And the doctor is essentially punished by the payment system for that. Uh, but again, it was something that was undertaken to say patients should be able to reflect on their uh, on their own experiences. Uh, we don't want to walk back from that. We want, right. we want pain to be taken seriously. Uh, when uh, drugs arose and they're much cheaper as time goes on, they become one of the cheapest ways of treating pain. So you could say, you know, do a multifactorial approach to pain, do physical therapy, right. do all kinds of other interventions, do psychological counseling uh, and, and drugs and so on and so forth. Those are all, when drugs come up and their price has gone down uh, so much, a payer might say, we should really address the pain issue. Right. Maybe drugs are, drugs are okay. Uh, and uh, so we have a lot of those kind of things prescribing guidelines changed to because the medical community started thinking these aren't as addictive as we thought they were. Mm -hmm. So if, if the research community is saying 
these aren't as addictive as we thought they were, should right. we say, we're not going to pay attention to medical research, we're just going to continue uh, to not prescribe these drugs? In other words, we sort of backed into these things in many cases with the best of intentions uh, through, through uh, well-meaning reforms that all tended to pull the same way. Mm -hmm. They all tended to open up the access to opioids, to more of them uh, and, to, and to more people. Right. So you ended up with it kind of supercharging what was going to be a problem with the development of far more addictive substances. Right. At the same time, you had fentanyl and some of its variations that are far more addictive, far more powerful. So all of this created what has turned out to be a national crisis right. to public, from a public health point of view. Yeah, this is what I would call a Kevin Bacon problem for government in this regard. I don't know if you know the name uh, of the game of, of, of yeah. in Hollywood. You yes. have degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes. How the celebrity appears in the film. What's their relation to Kevin Bacon? How many steps? Um, opioids are very much the same way in terms of how one lives one's life. Maybe you've had a brush with opioids because you've had an injury and you get prescribed Vicodin or Oxy or something like that. And the next thing you know, you are much more dependent on it than you would like. Maybe you lose a grandparent and you go to time to clear out their possessions and realize that grandma or grandpa had 25 different prescriptions just you know loaded up. And this is part of the problem of opioids, I think, by the way. Seniors are getting maybe over-prescribed. Over we could talk about that more if you want to. Um, I have a dog who's 12 years old today. He's a senior dog. He's a wonderful dog, but he's on various medications now, one of which is called Tramadol. I used to take him to a, um, a dog place to, uh, to abort him when I would travel, and they wouldn't take him anymore because he was on Tramadol, and they had a problem. People working there were stealing Tramadol. Why? You take Tramadol, and you crush it up, and it turns into a cocktail for a drug. So, so opioids, I think, reaches more Americans than perhaps we think. We just think, oh, it's just a group of people in this country who are addicted on drugs. But no, I think it has a wider scope. But let me ask you this. We've had a war on drugs in America for how many decades now? It's been, what, 35 years since Nancy yeah. Reagan said, just say no? Right. And that war on drugs has become very controversial. But if you wanted to declare war on opioids, how would you go about doing that? Well, we have uh, a number of different interventions that we're doing that are specifically targeted on the opioids issue. Right. And a lot of it is uh, is trying to change for one, the medical community and its attitude towards it. How is it doing prescribing? How is how, to make sure that the medical community understands right. the, the the latest and best research? Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, is the fact that CDC and our public health uh, community is kind of interacting and saying, look, the previous understanding it was it was not right. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to kind of get the medical community, and some of that's like turning around an ocean liner right. uh, because people are already kind of embedded on their particular protocols and you right. got to change their you got to change the behavior in that way mm -hmm. uh, to a, a healthier way some of it is going to be research in other words finding a non-addictive painkiller mm -hmm. uh, is kind of the holy grail for the right. medical researchers so right. we got our national institutes of health working on that side of things and also you know fda facilitating the ability of private industry to come in and and find these other interventions, whether they're right. new drugs, devices, what have you, uh, enabling that. Uh, our uh, substance abuse agency, SAMHSA, mm -hmm. uh, has a whole new set of state uh, funding right. that is going to be oriented around providing the best, most uh, evidence-based treatment for them. So it, there's a whole host of things that, as HHS, we're entering into because, really, uh, 
President Trump made this his signal public health right. initiative, um, and you know this was in 2017. He campaigned on this in New Hampshire. He yeah. campaigned it on in on New Hampshire in 2017. Uh, he announced it. I was actually acting secretary at the time. I declared the public health emergency with regard to opioids. Um, yes, you had a you had a brief but brilliant run of how many months? Four months. Four months. I had four months. It's a glorious run. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but in the middle of it, that's when uh, the president kind of announced a focus on opioids. He launched right. the, the initiative uh, formally later, but it was, uh, we we started work on it. Congress came in with a lot of new authorities and, and a lot of new resources on this because it's recognized that we are in the middle of a national crisis. This right. is not a normal uh, problem that we have here, and it's not infectious disease. It's not something being imposed on us from outside. Right. It's something we, uh, as a country, are taking it ourselves. We're doing it to ourselves. So you have three challenges here, it seems to me, um, in government. Number one is you're going to have to talk to industry about what industry is making, and you can't tell them what to make, but you surely can try to push them. And you talked about trying to find a non-addictive painkiller, I, I assume a non-addictive version of Vicodin. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you've got to sit down with the medical profession and talk to them about how often they're going to their pad and they're prescribing things. I saw a stat the other day about uh, senior citizens. The hospitalization rate due to opioid abuse has quintupled over the past two decades for those over age 65. So older people are just gobbling down too much medicine. So this sparks a conversation with the industry about how you're treating your patients. And then thirdly, you're gonna have to talk to Americans writ large about their personal behavior and trying to encourage them to get, you know, take charge of their lives. And to me, this creates a really interesting question about government's role in these various things. How do you offer the carrot? When do you brandish the stick? And just how active does government get into this? Well, we have a lot of levers yep. within the government and kind of employing them thoughtfully mm -hmm. in a way that creates the least amount of disruption on people's lives, but right. achieving what we need to get to as a nation, I think, is the key here, right? Mm -hmm. That's got to be the that's got to be the guide here. When you look at something like medical professionals, we got a lot of things like uh, prescription d drug monitoring programs that we're advocating for. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, this allows the doctors to see whether their patients are going to other doctors to get other prescriptions to say like, are you actually only coming to me for your prescription uh, opioid, or you got five different prescriptions in five different places? Um, and now we're able to get some insight into that because of the you know uh, nearly universal adoption of. Mm -hmm. PDMP software that allow the doctors and the increasing adoption by the doctors of looking at these things for us to provide incentives for the doctors to look at these before they prescribe uh, and say, we got to look at this. Uh, also, more clarity on super prescribing doctors, the, the small percentage of doctors that seem to reach for opioids almost exclusively for their patients and prescribe high amounts of them to their patients. That's obviously an issue. It can provide a larger issue. It can verge into criminal uh, activity, obviously, at, at some point where they're diverting the drugs uh, to elsewhere in the system instead of providing them actually to their patients. Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to provide those tools and also to set out some of the standards that, that the doctors followed before when HHS set them. Right. Uh, and to be able to set those in a way that reflects the the current understanding of how these things are working. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, as the engagement with the medical professionals. Uh, industry, it's always ongoing. You know, we're always going to hope for them to develop more of these interventions. And in some cases, when they've been doing illegal activity, and sometimes it happens, mm -hmm. that, you know, in other words, they're selling drugs, advocating for them, promising 
it's going to be X, Y, and Z. This is non-addictive, but it really is. Uh, there's going to have to be consequences for that as well. But really, we want, to be, we want to enable them and incentivize them to produce the innovative solutions in this space. Sometimes it's going to be social services. It's going to be something that enables people to kind of coordinate care and, and stitch together an entire fabric of interventions around somebody who has a problem. Mm -hmm. That it's not simply going to this doctor or going to your primary care doctor, but there's so many places that people who have addiction, they intersect with either the healthcare system or social services that they often fall through the cracks. There are a number in front of 18 different agencies, say. Right. Um, or our system of regulation really discourages care coordination. It discourages people in in those agencies or in those um, uh, uh, locations of care from talking to each other mm -hmm. uh, because they're afraid of the consequences or they have so much paperwork they have to fill out right. that uh, I remember one time I went to a, 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 an opioid clinic and I asked the one of the uh, people there, I said, how many pieces of paperwork do you have to do to coordinate on a single kind of episode with somebody who has a problem? She said 11. 11 different pieces of paper forms. that they had, forms, yeah. that they had to fill out with regard to a single uh, episode uh, for a particular person who has substance use disorder. Now, that is, it was kind of mind-blowing uh, to hear about that experience. Now that's the edge. I'm not, right, you know, that's right. that's kind of the the biggest number I've heard in this area. But it is symptomatic mm -hmm. of the fact that there are all these issues, and then overlaying it is a system that doesn't really allow people to kind of talk to each other. Sometimes for good reason. You do, people want privacy about these issues. You know, somebody who has an addiction issue is going to be rightfully concerned about the effects that this knowledge would have if it were widely known in their community. Right. So there's got to be privacy uh, in here, but there also has to be a balance of the fact that the treatment has to be able to be provided across a number of different areas. And that's a, that's a big part of this. And that's not finding that, that new drug. That's not finding like the, a single shot, some kind of silver bullet, but it's this very difficult grunt work mm -hmm. in the community of allowing a bunch of different people who are providing care to all work with each other without fear. Okay, one final opioid question and we'll move on to topic two, and that is the question of who's atop the bully pulpit. Uh, to push a topic to get it from the American people, you have a bully pulpit, the bully pulpit needs a bully. So Nancy Reagan was the bully, if you will, back in the 1980s, and she enlisted some famous people from Hollywood to help out. You look at this in the modern century and the 21st century, and would you have the president atop the bully pulpit, who's a busy, busy man? Would you ask the first lady? Would you ask Ivanka? Would you try to get celebrities? How do you think this should be messaged to the American people? Well, the president himself has taken this on personally. Right. I mean, that is, that's the ultimate uh, in the governmental system, is that right. he's on this. And I'll say, every time that I have met with him, this is the topic we talk about. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, this is on his mind. Right. Uh, it, the opioid issue and the issue of addiction is something that he's talked personally about, about substance use addiction. Uh, and he talks about it personally. The First Lady is very much engaged on a lot of the, lot of the topics that we have, like neonatal abstinence syndrome, where children are born addicted. Uh, in some communities, you have 20 or even 30% of children being born addicted to opioids. I mean, you have these towns uh, in, throughout the heartland where this is a r serious issue. Um, and 
this, so this is a problem that's going to be with us for decades. Mm-hmm. Honestly, even if we were to solve it all tomorrow and the silver bullet arrived, right. it's still going to have echoes down for decades in this country is the fact that this burst out three or four years ago uh, and has sort of uh, affected every community in this country. All right, let's shift on to topic number two, and that is the divide in health care in this country between urban and rural America. Uh, I'm going to throw some statistics at you, which uh, I found just eye-opening. Stat number one, one in four Americans, about 85 million Americans, that's two Californians. California is about 40 million people. Only one in four Americans can get to a hospital with a level one or two trauma center in under an hour. If they have to get there in a hurry, they need a helicopter. They just can't drive to it. Stat number two, the great state of Alabama. 1980, Alabama, uh, 45 of the state's 54 rural counties had hospitals providing OB services, delivering babies. Today, it's just 15 out of 54. So they've lost two-thirds of their rural hospitals that can provide OB services. Texas. Texas, which we think of as a pretty advanced state. 30 of the state's 254 counties do not have a doctor. 80 counties have five or few physicians. 58 counties have no general surgeon. Eight of every 10 Texans are listed by the Health and Resources uh, Administration as not having enough primary care doctors to meet population needs. This is staggering. And if we think of opioids, Secretary Hagan, as that crisis is hurting the American dream of longevity, this also affects the American dream because part of the principle at the heart of America is living where you want to live. But what these statistics would tell you is, okay, if I want to live in rural America, I have to make some serious, cons- I have to seriously think over what's going to happen to my health care. Well, I mean, this is an issue that I take very personally because um, I grew up underfoot in a rural hospital, right. uh, you know, a town of 800 mm-hmm. uh, in deep southern Illinois. And so, and my mother worked there 58 years right. uh, as x-ray tech, uh, right. 58 years, starting 1953. So um, it has been an issue, rural hospitals right. and their problems. There's no longer, that hospital doesn't any longer so, exist. So, so the first thing you always hear is young men and women come out of med school. They don't want to work in rural hospitals. No, they do not. Uh, they don't is, go there. But this is a separate problem. They're not, not just finding doctors to go work there. There's no there there. There's no hospital there right. to work in. Yeah, I mean, th- that, that hospital no longer exists. St. Mary's Hospital no longer exists in Carroll, Illinois. In fact, uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken. And even back then, when I was born, the OB unit had gone away from the hospital. I wasn't even born in the hospital my mother worked at. Yeah. Uh, she had to go across the river to Missouri. So I was born in the show me state because there was no OB unit in the local hospital. So the, the you know, this is a, that was an issue that really decades, decades ago was already developing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people didn't pay attention to it in many cases, because again, it's rural America. People did, it's not the spotlight. It's not the hot center. Right. And so people didn't pay attention to what was going on out there. And now it's, we're in, as you point out very rightly there, right. it's a crisis. And we're going to, we're working at HHS now in this administration on providing a lot of, uh, working on developing a lot of interventions that we think are going to they're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Secretary Azar has launched a rural health task force that has been working on uh, trying to get these issues uh, corralled for us to understand. Right. Things like telehealth. You're, you're not going to be able to say, I'm going to provide every specialist in America in a town of 800 people. Mm-hmm. You'd have a town just made of doctors, you know, all treating each other. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So, uh, so you have to find a way to get, though, that information to right. the patients who live there. Right. And now we have a lot of sophisticated technology in terms of telehealth, in terms of ability to treat people at a distance right. that is very sophisticated at this point. Uh, it's not simply sitting on a phone call, but there's a lot of ways that this can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've stood out a couple of 
I think, interesting uh, things within Medicare uh, mm-hmm. that have been launched out of uh, CMS, which handles Medicare, that are some changes to how we deal with communication technology, remote technology. Uh, we're allowing a lot more um, flexibility with Medicaid, I think, that are going to be able to address some of these issues on that level. Uh, We also need to probably address the issues of workforce. It's not just being able to have uh, access to a great specialist Mm -hmm. uh, remotely, but also who's going to actually help the patient on the ground there. Uh, You're not going to get an MD, PhD to come work at a little town. Uh, You're going to have to be able to have someone there who can put that into place. Mm -hmm. Part of that is going to be developing innovative solutions in telehealth. Some of it's going to be more access to what called patient empowering technologies. I sponsored this thing called Patient Empowering Technology Summit, PETS. Uh, if you have a better acronym, I'd love to hear it, but it's a, it's what we use. Um, and it's, it, it's uh, working on understanding and helping integrate uh, new technologies, wearables, implantables, apps, smartphones, artificial intelligence that analyzes the information that comes out of these things mm-hmm. and helps provide some level of help in right. terms of support for people to be able to manage their own care outside of a hospital setting or an urban setting where there's a, a richer network of providers. But uh, being able to use these very cutting-edge interventions, in many cases, I'm going to say rural health, if we can succeed in some of these things, may be one of those things where you leapfrog uh, over uh, places that have uh, richer networks right now. It's right. like the case of those, you know, countries out there that never put in landlines but went straight to cell phones right. uh, because they they sort of never got the, the full network, but they slept right over it into something that's that's better. So our time is wrapping up here, so let me give you one last question, and uh, I hope you have an answer for this one. It's a little complicated. We have lost uh, 80 rural hospitals since 2010, and I saw a study that says that another 700 700, that is what, uh, eight, nine times that 80, that figure of 2010. Others 700 at risk of closing their doors in the next decade. So that that is a calamity uh, of, of enormous proportions. Who solves this problem? Is this A, the federal government, B, the state government, C, local government, D, do we have to track down a bunch of billionaires in America and get them to start building hospitals, which they like to do here in the Bay Area, for example, or is it E, all the above? Well, I think it it has to involve at least the government and the industry itself. Right. I don't I don't know that depending on philanthropy as as good as it is is a sustainable option. Right. Uh we're going to have people in rural communities uh, who need to get this care, and they have to have it in a sustainable way. So we're going to have to right. develop a system that kind of works on its own, that provides the right incentives in the place, that allows us to relieve some of the regulatory burdens right. that are unnecessary, mm-hmm. that are on rural hospitals right now, that they struggle to comply with, because they simply don't have the personnel to be able to sort of comply with all of the demands. And in many cases, they don't need to. We go to our people that deal with waste, fraud, and abuse, that deal with quality issues, and they say, we can relieve a lot of these burdens. We've done that. Hundreds of measures that were no longer needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we go to our staff that have worked there for many years and say, are there any of these things that you don't need anymore? And they came up with a long list and said, we don't need these anymore. They're obsolete. They're not clinically significant anymore. The science has moved on. Uh, they're duplicative. The, uh, these kind of things, we can relieve those burdens and 
hopefully allow there to be some breathing space uh, for these hospitals to be able to not have to sort of work all the time on fulfilling endless paperwork and regulatory burden. That's got to be part of the solution here. Uh, and we're, we're interacting with them on this rural health task force to make sure we get their voices in here to see whether it's a regulatory issue, is it reimbursement issues, is it technology, is it workforce issues, is it, is it something else altogether? Mm -hmm. Is it state? Is it local? Is it federal? What are the levers that we can use to enable them to survive and thrive uh, for the next generation? Because we have seen the same kinds of projections that you were just talking about right. ourselves. And that is part of what animated Secretary Azar to launch this task force to be able to sort of bring our uh, leadership and uh, sort of our best minds mm -hmm. to focus on this issue. Okay, Elliot, I do have one final question. This is the Area 45 podcast, and let's and let's finish with a question about 45 himself. He goes to New Hampshire next year running for re-election. He's going to go to towns where he promised to work on opioids in 2016. Very quickly, one minute or less, what does he say in the way of progress? Uh, I think, and I, I'm very hopeful, we've seen good signs that all the efforts we're putting in place are starting to turn this around, that we're starting to see, especially in some of the hardest hit, hardest hit areas where opioids have been uh, worst, uh, how we're starting to see good signs, mm -hmm. that the number of interventions that we're doing and the amount of effort we're putting in is actually starting to turn the corner on this terrible affliction. So we're... I think we're hopeful that if current trends continue, we're going to have a good message to give on this front. So I think, you know, I'm hopeful. And again, there's there's tentative signs, early signs, that the, the amount of effort that has been put in and the amount of creativity that's been put in to addressing this issue is starting to have some good effects. Okay. Well, let's do this podcast again, and hopefully we'll have more to talk about in the way of progress. That'd be great. Secretary Hargan, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan is on Twitter. You're a brave man. His Twitter handle is at DepSecHargan. You spell that D-E-P-S-E-C-H-A-R-G-A-N, at DepSecHargan. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is, of course, on the Internet. The website is www.hhs.gov. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.